You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The Norsk Hydro recovery continues with high marks for transparency. Some notes on the challenges of deterrence in cyberspace from yesterday's CyberSec DC conference, along with context for U.S. skepticism about Huawei hardware. CookieBot says the EU is out of compliance with GDPR, its sites infested with data scraping ad tech. Google and Facebook get, if not a haircut, at least a trim in EU and U.S. courts. And some animad versions concerning digital courtship displays. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, March 20th, 2019. Norsk Hydro has made significant strides toward recovery from yesterday's Locker Goga infestation. The company said this morning that it had recovered many of its affected systems and is on its way toward restoring normal, stable operations. The disruptions had affected both business and production systems. Some speculation about nation-state or hacktivist involvement aside, the emerging consensus seems to be that this was low-level commodity criminal activity with far-reaching effects. We heard from CrowdStrike's vice president of intelligence, Adam Myers, who wrote that Locker Goga was also behind the infection of the French engineering company Altran in January of this year. Myers wrote, quote, While details of the Norsk Hydro incident are still developing, CrowdStrike Intelligence has been able to identify a new sample of the Locker Goga ransomware that was uploaded to a public malware repository in two zip files from an IP address based in Oslo, Norway, end quote. Norsk Hydro is engaged in the electricity-hungry production of aluminum. Cyber VP of Industrial Security Phil Nere pointed out to us in an email that manufacturers like Norsk Hydro have some particular concerns about ransomware. He said, quote, Downtime is measured in millions of dollars per day, and companies producing metals or chemicals are at additional risk should production disruption cause safety and environmental incidents, end quote. Norsk Hydro itself is getting pretty high marks for the speed and transparency of its response to the incident. Drago's CEO Robert M. Lee has tweeted Norsk a thumbs up in particular for their transparency. He offers a simultaneous thumbs down, that's two thumbs way, way down, to those in the industry who would use the incident as FUD fodder to flack their products. We were able to attend the inaugural meetings of CyberSec DC in Washington yesterday. Their focus was on the connection between economic development, particularly the rapidly advancing tech sector, and cybersecurity, particularly as that linkage is evolving along NATO's eastern flank. Sponsored by the Center for European Policy Analysis, CEPA, and the Kosciusko Institute, the conference's announced goal was to advance the transatlantic quest for cyber trust. 
The discussion inevitably turned to the threat of hybrid war from Russia, something of which the twelve nations of the Three Seas group are uneasily aware. The Three Seas Initiative is a cooperative arrangement among the Central and Eastern European nations that stretch from the Baltic to the Black and Adriatic Seas. Austria, Bulgaria, Croatia, Czech Republic, Estonia, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia. With the exception of formerly neutral Austria, these states are all either former Warsaw Pact countries or former Soviet republics, and so are very much attuned to the risky ministrations of what several panelists called our friends to the East. Several of the speakers pointed out that the challenge the Russian adversary poses is in operations that fall below the threshold of armed conflict. While NATO has made it clear that cyber attacks can trigger the collective defense the alliance's Article 5 commits its members to, cyber operations are still too new for there to be a clear set of proportionate responses. The participants recommended full use of the NATO toolbox, including diplomatic and economic tools, and they argued that imposition of costs need not, and probably should not, be symmetric. That is, threatened retaliation for cyber attacks need not confine itself to cyber counterattacks. The other challenge the conference took up was the different, more long-term threat that China poses as it continues to advance its position in the global technology marketplace. In this respect, Robert L. Strayer, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Cyber and International Communications and Information Policy at the U.S. Department of State, had some observations that place the well-known American reservations about participation by companies like Huawei and 5G networks into context. These are worth mentioning, as they're often glossed over in discussions of the controversies around Huawei. Strayer observed that vendors from countries that subject their companies to extrajudicial processes are fundamentally untrustworthy and should be viewed with particular suspicion with respect to participation in 5G networks. Such extrajudicial processes would include non-appealable demands to contribute to state surveillance and espionage activities. The much-expanded attack surface 5G will present makes accepting this risk a high-stakes proposition, and Strayer argued that no source code review will be sufficient to reveal all the problems equipment from such companies may bring with it. He offered two other economic reasons to be wary of Chinese companies, and specifically of Huawei. Its engineering seems not to be up to par, and that while the equipment might be cheaper up front, it's likelier to be costlier over its life cycle. Thus, Strayer found it surprising that Europe flirted more with Huawei than it did with European champions like Ericsson or Nokia, and he also argued that the financial terms under which Chinese equipment is being offered are unrealistic and ultimately inadequate to sustaining a competitive market. An observation we heard from folks on the ground at this year's RSA conference was that much of the marketing hype surrounding AI and machine learning had died down quite a bit. Landon Lewis is CEO of security firm Pondurance, and he joins us to share his thoughts on our relationship with AI. I think that if we can look back at behavioral analytics as nearly a, a concept of identifying suspicious behaviors and then marrying both humans and technology to attempt to, to uncover that. In the past, there were enough technologies and not enough people. And essentially now, you know, the, there's a capability of almost 
I would look at it as enhanced or advanced behavioral analytics um, that, that have come to the market. I look at AI or any technology or tool as more of an extension of hands in a way to create you know, more efficient processes for eliminating some of the, the risks that uh, the market's facing. So, I mean, walk me through in your estimation, what is the appropriate place for AI in an organization? Where, where does it sit uh, in the, the, the stack of, of tools that folks have available to them? Typically anywhere where it's easy to understand good data and bad data. And what I mean by that, we've seen I think we're at the end of this market, but it was termed as next generation endpoints or the EDR space. And, you know, there were some early adopters in that space of leveraging what they're calling AI. Essentially, they're able to run a, a bunch of binaries that they know are bad. And what, what I mean by that is they're, they were able to essentially go out to VirusTotal and say, let's download everything that, that has uh, a bad score. If we download everything with a bad score, and then we can download things that have a good score, we're able to separate good from bad. And we can build a model around bad, and we can build a model around good. And then it's all about the gray area in between, right? That kind of makes it a differentiator. There's a lot more complexity to that. That's a simplified model of essentially what you would try to do on a network um, or what you might try to do with log data that a machine generates. So anything that you could separate good and bad from, um, and, and there has to be a large quantity of that data, um, the closer you are to building something that's you know more AI, machine learning driven that, that can help a SOC analyst or, or an individual engineer. But what about uh, intuition? You know, I, 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 I've heard where uh, folks have described how um, they'll look at some data or look at a report or something and they'll say, uh, something just doesn't feel right here. I can't quite put my finger on it. But uh, there's something that I feel like I should spend more time with. Is that an area where AI comes up short or, or does can AI sometimes surprise us? I believe if you've got the models trained appropriately from a futuristic standpoint, uh, or, or we're at least moving in that direction, where some type of event could basically have uh, suspicious indicators that, that your models could basically kind of uh, provide tips to your analyst, right? So again, more of an extension of the hand of saying, this is suspicious and here is why. I think it behooves us really to start explaining to an analyst what it is about that, right? So essentially you've got to say, how was that model built and translate that back into something that an analyst understands? So the AI can say, hey, I flagged this and here are the reasons why I think this needs a second look from you. That's one of the, the most difficult pieces, right, is you have to go back to, okay, well, who built this model and what type of events was it looking at? For me to understand as an analyst, I have this event and it's saying, you know, suspicious activity. How can I go layers deeper? So the point ends up being you've got to have an analyst with the skill level that can almost move backwards, right, and not be, you know, a data scientist to, to really understand, like, why the model may be flagging it. I think AI is something that's typically going to help us. I believe describing it as a silver bullet is somewhat dangerous. And I believe that humans are still required to train the models that make AI more useful. I do believe in the long run, it's going to, to help us essentially extend the hands of, of our staff. That's Landon Lewis from Pondurance. Physician, heal thyself. Security firm CookieBot has looked into EU official government services sites 
and determined that a surprisingly large fraction of them leak personal information of EU citizens to various third parties in ways that contravene the EU's GDPR regime. ZDNet calls it an infestation of third-party ad tech scripts. The EU has fined Google's parent Alphabet 1.49 billion euros, that's about $1.7 billion, for anti-competitive restriction of other companies' ads. This is the last of three formal EU antitrust actions against the company. It's by no means a business killer, since Alphabet has deep pockets, but it's a large judgment. Some U.S. politicians have already pointed out that maybe more aggressive antitrust action, like a breakup, should be in the cards, but so far that's preliminary posturing. Facebook has settled a lawsuit by agreeing to change its advertising platform to reduce the possibility of discrimination in housing and employment. This affects in particular use of such user demographics as race, age, and gender. The number and volume of DDoS attacks dropped significantly after the FBI took down 15 DDoS for hire sites in December. Researchers from NexusGuard found that in the fourth quarter of 2018, the number of DDoS attacks sank by 11%, and the average size of these attacks fell by 85%. So bravo, FBI, but everybody else? Well, don't get cocky, kids. And finally, those who have followed the National Enquirer's coverage of Amazon Chief Bezos' online courtship display, the one Mr. Bezos gamely addressed in his No Thank You, Mr. Pecker blog post, may have wondered where Mr. Pecker's Enquirer obtained the texts that constituted this particular expression of ardor. Speculation had run towards Saudi Arabia, the White House, hackers, everywhere— but it appears that the entire transaction may have been much more prosaic than that. The peacock may have spread his metaphorical tail feathers to inspire reciprocal feelings in the peahen, but reports in the New York Post's page 6 say that the Enquirer paid the peahen's brother, that would be the peacock's boyfriend-in-law, some 200,000 to send them the goods. Pro tip, during courtship, send flowers, bake cookies, Sure, they're traditional, but they're almost always appreciated. These kids today. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. 
this can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Dr. Charles Clancy. He's the director of the Hume Center for National Security and Technology at Virginia Tech. Dr. Clancy, welcome back. Um, I saw an article come by recently, and this was about a new GPS satellite that was uh, recently launched successfully. Uh, and they're they're uh, touting this as being the first GPS-3 satellite. Uh, what are we talking about here? What makes GPS-3 special? So GPS technology is, is 40 years old at this point. Um, the military has been launching satellites uh, since the, the, well, planning satellites since the late 1970s and, and launching since the 1980s, and has been incrementally improving the technology uh, as they have launched more and more satellites. Uh, GPS Block 3 has been in planning now for uh, over a decade, and we've just now finally seen uh, the first satellite launch. Some of the, the features of GPS-3 um, include um, a higher signal uh, strength. The, the actual signal that's transmitted by the GPS satellite is stronger. Uh, that means you'll be able to lock on to it in, uh, uh, like inside. The, the goal is to try and get more indoor coverage for GPS. Uh. Another feature is that they are transmitting a companion signal uh, that actually is a, a guide to help you uh, find the, the the GPS satellites. Uh, if you used, uh, say, a Garmin GPS uh, probably 15 years ago, uh, you may recall that it, it could take a couple minutes to actually lock onto the GPS satellites. Sure. Um, now we have assisted GPS technology where essentially your cell phone is using uh, cell tower data to try and uh, figure out where it is, and then it uses GPS to refine that location. So it's a, a fundamentally different system. But there's a companion signal that's going to be part of, of the GPS Block 3 that makes it much faster to acquire the GPS signal. Uh, and there's one other component. is There's a, there's a, a new uh, uh, localization signal called um, L5 that is part of the uh, transmitted signal. And uh, this is a higher bandwidth signal that uh, will give you finer grain uh, ability to localize yourself. Uh, so the idea is that once GPS Block 3 is fully deployed... Uh, you'll be able to get more indoor localization, and the uh, the localizations that you see will be uh, on the order of one meter in accuracy. Now, are we still in a situation where uh, the real precise GPS is being limited to the military? Uh, no. Uh, back in the 1990s, the that feature was activated in the GPS constellation as commercial use uh, began to grow. Um, and uh, there was the civilian GPS versus the military GPS. Uh, but in the early 2000s, uh, the White House approved basically opening up that military level of accuracy to everyone. Um, so there really isn't a difference in the level of precision that the military sees versus the civilian GPS receivers. I see. All right. Well, thanks for filling us in. As always, Dr. Charles Clancy, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot. 
And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.